It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 413 for October 5th, 2014. This week, Microsoft caught just about everyone off guard by announcing that there will be no Windows 9 in the near future, and that Windows 10 won't be released until late next year. We'll try to catch up. And in short circuits, Mark Twain was right when he said that lies travel faster than truth, and this is even more true in the age of the Internet. Considering where the FCC will go with net neutrality, eBay plans to spin PayPal as an independent company next year, and the good news from BlackBerry is that losses are smaller this year. Well, that was a surprise. Microsoft says that Windows 9 will not be released, and that Windows 10 will be out sometime next year. Late next year. Microsoft has never been very good with version numbers. Windows progressed from 1 to 2 to 3 to 95 and 98, and then NT in 2000, Vista, the version with no number, 7, 8, and now 10. Maybe with 10, they'll adopt Apple's approach and retain 10 and just add decimal numbers. Apparently, the biggest news is that the start menu will be back. In some ways, this vindicates my opinion from the year before Windows 8 was released. In other ways, it's discouraging. In September 2011, I wrote, and I quote, Windows 8 will have a desktop. Currently, there's just a start screen, but I hope the start menu will be retained for the desktop view, or that at least the start screen will be modified to allow more customization than is currently present. In several subsequent programs, I repeated that opinion. Later, after using Windows 8 for only a day or two, I reversed my opinion on the start menu. It wasn't really needed then, and it isn't needed now. But it will make a return to Windows 10. Perhaps this will placate those who simply cannot deal with change in any form. And that's the discouraging part. Microsoft is reinventing an old wheel that isn't really needed in today's world. That concern aside, the roadmap for Windows 10 looks very promising. If Microsoft's history tells us anything, it's that the company is very good at iterative processes. Previously, the Metro or modern apps ran full screen or in very rigid boxes. Now, even apps run in a window just as desktop applications do. They can be resized and moved around. They have title bars at the top so users can maximize, minimize, and close with a click. Microsoft is also very good about not communicating anything to anyone outside the company until they're willing to do so. In recent weeks, it has been impossible to find anyone who would even admit that the company was working on a new version of the operating system. Complete and utter silence. So, reading the tea leaves of this week's announcements suggests strongly that Microsoft is going to continue the process of developing a single operating system for phones, tablets, notebooks, and desktop systems. I consider that to be the right approach. The most frightening problem Windows 8 created for Microsoft was a reluctance by corporate IT managers to adopt Windows 8. Some misguided IT managers still have Windows XP installed on users' machines. Others have moved on to Windows 7, 
but Windows 8 has been a very tough sale in the corporate market. Tech research firm Forrester Research says that only about 20% of corporate IT divisions make Windows 8 an option for employees. Most businesses are still running the four-year-old Windows 7, and some have continued to stick with Windows XP, even though it is no longer supported. Perhaps Windows 9 was seen as not being sufficiently different from Windows 8, hence scrapping of that version with plans to release Windows 10 in late 2015. Microsoft says that Windows 10 allows users to have four apps snapped on the same screen with a new quadrant layout. Windows will also show other apps and programs running for additional snapping, and it can make what Microsoft calls smart decisions on filling available screen space with other apps. The ability to create multiple desktops isn't new. I don't mean multiple screens, I mean multiple desktops that you can switch between on a single screen or on multiple screens. Linux users have been able to do this for a long time. There have been utilities that allow Windows users to do it for quite a while too. Now it'll be part of the operating system so that users can create workspaces for different purposes and projects and then switch between them easily. Microsoft will release preview versions of Windows 10 for anybody who wants to download it. That includes the current development version. So should you take the company up on that offer? The Windows Technical Preview, that's what its name is, is not production-ready software. You can join the Windows Insider program if you want, and if you don't mind dealing with what Microsoft calls a moving target. You'll find a link on the TankBiter Worldwide website that will guide you to where you can download the appropriate ISO file. There are cautions to keep in mind if you're thinking about downloading Windows 10. Download and install the preview only if you want to try out software that's still in development and you like sharing your opinion about it. If you don't mind lots of updates or UI design that might change significantly over time. Download it only if you really know your way around a PC and feel comfortable troubleshooting problems, backing up data, formatting a hard drive, installing an operating system from scratch, or restoring the old one if you need to. Consider this only if you know what an ISO file is and how to use it. And consider this only if you plan to install it on something other than your everyday computer. That final point is critical. Do not install pre-production software on a computer you depend on for important information. Microsoft puts it this way. The Windows Insider program is intended for PC experts and IT pros who are comfortable using pre-release software with variable quality. Insiders will receive a steady stream of early builds from us with the latest features we are experimenting with. Keyword there, experimenting. When you download the ISO file, you will receive four even more stringent warnings from Microsoft. One, remember, trying out an early build like this can be risky. That's why we recommend that you do not install the preview on your primary home or business PC. Two, unexpected PC crashes could damage or even delete your files, so you should back up everything. Three, if you want to stop using the Windows Technical Preview and return to your previous version of Windows, you will need to reinstall the previous version from the recovery or installation media that came with your PC, typically a DVD. If you don't have recovery media, you might be able to create a USB recovery drive. And four, after you install Windows Technical Preview, you will not be able to use the recovery partition on your PC to go back to the previous version of Windows.
So it's important for everyone to consider this version of Windows to be essentially a first draft of what will actually be released in a year or so. And a lot of things can happen in a year. And consider the landscape to be very much uncharted territory. So proceed with caution. Here's an interesting side note before I go on and tell you about my experience. I wrote the first part of that report while waiting for routine maintenance to be performed on my car. The minor irony is this. The computer I use to write it is a Chromebook. So what have I seen with Windows 10 so far? A few things are important to note before I tell you anything. First, my test machine for Windows 10 is an older 32-bit system. Second, between the time I installed Windows 10 and press time for this edition of the program was approximately two days. Third, I had other things to do during those two days. And fourth, as a result, the information that I'm providing thus far is on the thin side. The system I used had Windows 8.1 installed, and the Windows 10 installer should have offered to update the existing system. It didn't, and I don't know why. Furthermore, I don't care why. Instead, I was offered only the option to keep my document files or keep nothing. I understood the options as presented and elected to keep the documents, knowing that any installed applications would be gone when the process was complete. When you download the ISO file, you'll see a product key, but you won't have to enter it. Also, there's no activation required for the technical preview, but the words evaluation version will appear in the lower right corner of the screen along with the build number. If you install Windows 10 on a working system that contains important programs and data, be sure to read everything completely. This is an early beta version of the operating system. Microsoft expects to offer a consumer preview version around the end of the year. That one should handle the installation exactly right. Development will have progressed substantially by then. The operating system will be more stable. If you are not a true geek, and perhaps a little bit of a masochist, I would recommend not installing Windows 10 right now. Should something go wrong, you have no recourse. During the installation process, you agree to these terms, and I quote, The program services include experimental and early pre-release software. This means you may experience occasional crashes and, in rare cases, data loss. To recover, you may have to reinstall your applications, the operating system, or reflash your device. Using the program services on some devices may impact your warranty. Check with your device provider. By participating, you agree to frequently back up your data. Well, the installation process itself proceeded normally, took a little over half an hour. My first impression of the Start menu with the Apps panel is that it works. The Start menu will be familiar to the hopelessly change-averse users who could never get the hang of either the Start screen or just typing the first few characters of the program they wanted to use. The optional Apps panel will be helpful for touch-enabled devices and for users who run Metro or modern apps on standard devices. I'll probably continue to pin my most used programs to the taskbar and use the Windows key and a few characters of the program's name to start other applications. I've been doing that since the advent of Windows 8. Putting the Start menu back is probably not going to change the way I work. And if you are one of the approximately three people on the planet who's willing to admit that you like the Start screen, you can get it back. Click the Start button, type Navigation Properties, then click Navigation Properties in the resulting display. Select the Start Menu tab, clear the checkbox in front of Use the Start Menu instead of the Start Screen, and click OK. You'll have the Start Screen back. Microsoft explains the whole thing this way. 
The Start menu is back, and it's more personal, more organized, and more fun than before. The full-size Start screen is here too, and it's easy to switch between them. Your choice! Probably somebody at an advertising agency spent at least half a day on those two sentences. Charms are gone. I suspect that users of tablets will miss them. On non-touch devices, the Charms panel appears when the mouse cursor hovers in the upper right or lower right corner for more than a second. Search, Share, Start, Devices, and Settings are all available from that menu. On touch devices, the panel can be swiped in from the right, and the options vary slightly if the Metro or Modern interface is active. Everything that was on the Charms panel is available elsewhere. I found that a vast antivirus had been removed and Microsoft Security Essentials had taken its place. When I attempted to install Avast, the download ran as expected, but the program could not be installed because of unspecified compatibility issues. That's not very surprising given the early beta status of the operating system. So overall, I haven't seen anything that's seriously broken, even in the early preview version. Overall, it appears that Microsoft's software engineers have done a pretty good job of melding the requirements of a desktop system to those of a phone and tablet system. It's definitely not yet ready for use on production machines, but Microsoft has a year to work that out. In Short Circuits, an article by Brendan Nyhan, an assistant professor of government at Dartmouth College, reminds me of the observation by Samuel Clemens, writing as Mark Twain, that a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. And that was in the 1800s. The internet compounds the problem. It's no surprise that interesting and unusual claims are often the most widely circulated articles on social media, Nyhan writes, who wants to share boring stuff. The champion myth and lie buster is Snopes.com, a site that is operated by Barbara and David Mickelson. Truthfully, they met at alt.folklore.urban. That's a news group. The site's objective is to confirm or debunk urban legends. In fact, some of the liars who send messages that they know to be false actually state in the message that the information they're providing has been verified on Snopes.com. The site goes beyond just stating that a rumor is true or false and presents the evidence that the Mickelsons have used to draw their conclusion. If there is insufficient evidence one way or the other, the item will be characterized as undetermined or unverifiable. Nyhan says that everyone knows there's dubious information online, but estimating the magnitude of the problem has been difficult. He cites work by Craig Silverman, a journalist and fellow at the Toe Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. Silverman developed Emergent, Nyan writes, a tool that tracks the dissemination of rumors online on topics ranging from a Microsoft acquisition to a supposed pumpkin spice condom created by Durex. The Microsoft story, that one was true, according to Silverman. The condom story, not so much. The full story is on the New York Times website. There's a link to the Times website and that article explicitly from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And you'll find Snopes at Snopes.com, a link also from the TechBiter Worldwide website. 
At a time when it's becoming difficult to tell the difference between fact and fiction or between reality and satire, it's easy to pass something along because it seems plausible. But it's also easy enough to check a site such as Snopes to obtain a second opinion and thereby avoid the embarrassment of signing your name to a lie. Perhaps the most annoying and disheartening response I've heard when I point out to someone that they've passed along something that simply wasn't true goes like this. Well, yeah, but I thought it was funny. And what's really distressing is discovering that someone has passed along a story from The Onion, that's a satire site, as if it was a legitimate news story. Which is not to claim that I have never accidentally forwarded something that seemed true, only to discover that it was false. Checking with Snopes takes only a few moments, so it's a good way to do yourself and truth a favor. I keep wondering where the FCC is going to be going with net neutrality. Despite his background in cable and wireless industries, FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler seems to be trying to achieve at least adequate results for Internet users. It's going to be difficult. Republican members of the commission are opposed to any regulation at all, while open Internet advocates are resolutely opposed to anything that sounds at all like slow lane or fast lane. Wheeler has proposed the creation of a fast lane for those providers who would be willing to pay more, but that would seem to create a de facto slow lane for everybody else. After all, internet speeds in the U.S. already suffer by comparison to what consumers have in large areas of Europe and Asia, even though users in the U.S. generally pay more. Where the FCC will come down on the issue of net neutrality is still very much an open question, but I'm beginning to reconsider my overall opinion of Wheeler. The topic, of course, is a hot one. It has generated more public comment than any other issue in the FCC's history, and the deluge of comments has caused the server that the FCC uses to collect public comments to crash several times. Nearly four million comments, most of them charging that Wheeler's proposal on net neutrality with a fast lane, doesn't go far enough to protect consumers who want to use their internet connections for activities such as viewing video, or to protect new businesses that could develop useful services but would be shut out of the market because they would be unable to pay for access to the fast lane. For someone who has spent most of his professional life as a lobbyist for cable and cellular companies, Wheeler's opinions are unusual. If he's counting on a revolving door to take him back to the commercial side following his term as FCC commissioner, his opposition, along with the Justice Department, to the merger of Sprint and T-Mobile isn't going to help. And now Wheeler says he believes that wireless broadband service should be regulated by the FCC in the same way wired services would be under his proposal. But then maybe he doesn't want to go back to being a lobbyist. He made a lot of money in business. Now in his mid-60s, Wheeler might be just thinking about retiring at the end of his term. And Wheeler is familiar with the problem that startups would face. In the 1980s, Wheeler formed a company that intended to deliver high-speed data to homes by using cable television lines. Sound familiar? That's kind of like the Internet via cable as we know it today. But in 1984, the startup company didn't have enough money to pay what the cable operators demanded. The company failed. 
So maybe it's time for me to reassess my opinion of Wheeler's proposal. If the fast lane is truly supersonic, and the everybody else lane is mandated to provide at least reasonably fast service, say something in the range of 20 megabits per second or faster, if that's the case, I could support the plan. What do you think? After a dozen years as a wholly owned subsidiary of eBay, PayPal will become a separate company next year. eBay acquired PayPal in 2002. Headquartered in San Jose, PayPal is located on eBay's corporate campus. It also has offices in several other cities in the U.S., Europe, and the Middle East. PayPal is a payment processor for online vendors, auction sites, and commercial users. It charges a fee for each transaction, depending on the currency or the payment method the seller uses. Besides San Jose, PayPal has offices in Omaha, Scottsdale, Charlotte, Boston, Baltimore, and Austin. European offices are located in Ireland and Germany. PayPal also has operations at two locations in India and one in Israel. It operates in Europe as a bank based in Luxembourg. In announcing the spin-off, eBay said the event should happen in the second half of 2015. The objective is to improve growth opportunities for both eBay and PayPal, by allowing them to concentrate on their respective strengths and market areas. The company also named Dan Schulman as the president of PayPal. He will become the CEO following the spin. Until this week, Schulman was president of the Enterprise Growth Group at American Express. BlackBerry says it lost just $207 million in the second quarter, and CEO John Chen says the company is definitely in the first half of an eight-quarter turnaround. Hinting perhaps that worse news might still be ahead, Chen said the company might not be at the lowest point, but we are near the bottoming out of this revenue. BlackBerry tried to sell itself to another company a little less than a year ago. That effort failed, and Chen became the new CEO. At the time, he said his goal was to return the company to profitability by the end of the 2014 fiscal year. February 2015 is when their fiscal year ends. A year ago, BlackBerry reported a quarterly loss of $965 million. So reducing the loss to just $207 million was really quite an accomplishment. Chen has emphasized BlackBerry's software division that creates applications IT departments can use to manage mobile devices that are connected to their networks. Other smartphone manufacturers do not offer applications like that. A week ago, Chen showed the new Passport phone. That's a large screen smartphone. The launch event was held in Toronto. No similar event was scheduled in the United States. Why? Lack of demand for BlackBerry products in the U.S. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, 
www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.